Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm terribly excited to welcome Gerald Pollack as my guest. I mean, how often do I interview someone that proved Nobel Prizes wrong while being a friend and work colleague with other ones? Indeed, Gerald Pollack believes that unconventional science is absolutely critical, that you shall question everything, and that every physical phenomenon or explanation that sounds a bit too complex is probably wrong because of the Occam Razor principle. And what he found out by investigating the field of water is that we may simply be wrong when we claim that there are only three phases to it, solid, liquid, and gas. That's what he attempts to prove in his book, The Fourth Phase of Water, beyond solid, liquid and gas. This is also why he fosters unconventional science and challenging approaches in his research journal called Water and in his yearly water conference, why he's building a framework for unconventional scientists with his Institute for Venture Science, and why he pursues some of these crazy high potential ideas through his startup Fourth Phase Incorporated. Gerald found half an hour for this interview in his packed agenda and he was so kind not to close the call when it finally lasted almost two hours. So I'll try to keep this introduction short and simply tell you that if you like what you hear and if you want to help me to get other awesome guests like Gerald Pollack on this microphone, please share this episode with two of your friends and colleagues. Really do it and I'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Gerald. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's good to be with you, Antoine. I'm delighted. Well, I can't tell you how glad and proud I am to speak with you right now because really, I I just finished the second path on your book and that was mind-blowing to many extents, which we will be covering, I guess, in that discussion. But right before, I'd like to start with our good old traditions, which is the postcard. So you are close to Seattle right now. So what could you tell me about whether the place you are or Seattle that I would ignore by now? Well, I'm in a place called Bellingham, which is 90 miles north of Seattle. And the reason I'm here is not that I hate Seattle. I love Seattle. The problem is that someone discovered that my home in Seattle is full of mold. And mold is not good for promoting health. And so I elected to get the mold remediated. And in order to do so, the company says, you have to move out. It's too dangerous to be there as we're removing the mold. So a friend of mine owns an apartment or rents an apartment up north at a a senior center in a, a city called Bellingham, which is a very pleasant place, not far from the Canadian border. And I've been living here now for five months, and I'm hopeful that I can return to Seattle in the next few weeks and return to my home. That will be a thrill. (laughs) But the home looks as though it's been decimated by a rocket that was launched (laughs) and was misdirected towards Seattle. It landed in my kitchen. And the kitchen looks as though it's been 
exploded. So there's, there's a good deal to do. And um, I'm hopeful that this will get done in the immediate future and I can return to my beautiful home overlooking Lake Washington and the Cascade Mountains. It's really nice. Well, in your book on the fourth phase of water, there are many experiments which I could figure out you doing in the kitchen, which is currently <laughs> destroyed. I guess it must have been in a lab, but there's a full part where you describe how you boil water. And I guess <laughs> that's the kind of experiment that everyone could be doing in a kitchen. So, But in your book, there's a quote, which uh, to me was the perfect way to open this discussion. You're writing that discovery consists of seeing what everybody has seen and thinking what nobody has thought. And I have to tell you, before reading your book, I was absolutely convinced that everything there is to know about water was discovered and known by everyone. And to my surprise, that's absolutely not the case. So when did you see that there is so much to uncover on water? And what makes you think that way? That's a really good question. And it happened progressively and gradually. And it, it happened because of, a, a, you might say, a mentor of mine, although we never worked together. His name is Gilbert Ling. And Gilbert, he passed recently at, at age just shy of 100. And uh, Gilbert came from China along with two other scientists. He was in the first cohort of scientists uh, chosen following World War II to come study in the U.S. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of people in China, and uh, those three were chosen. So those three were among the most promising young scientists, and one of them went on to win a Nobel Prize in physics. And Gilbert Ling should have won a Nobel Prize for his many, many contributions. And I first got to know Gilbert Ling about 25 years ago at a conference to which I was invited. And I came to know him and also a dozen or so people who had ev evidence to support his point of view. And his point of view is that water and biology is different from liquid water. We know liquid water very well, but he said, no, no, it's different inside the cell. In particular, he said the water molecules are not bouncing around fiercely at a huge number of times per second or per, even per femtosecond. They're ordered. They're standing at attention, like, like soldiers at attention. And he presented evidence, or he had collected evidence during his lifetime, as had others, to support that general point of view. And when I met him, after I met him, I was really blown away by what he had presented. I had known vaguely of it earlier, but this really clinched it for me because not just of, because of the logic and in what he presented and, and the evidence to support it, but also the evidence from other laboratories supporting that general point of view. Well, it turns out, if we're right, that Gilbert Ling was not exactly correct in his assertion. I think he was correct in his assertion that the water inside the cell differed in, in a major way from ordinary liquid water. But I think he was not right in detail. And the book that you mentioned describes the experiments that, that show that it's a bit different from what Gilbert had suggested. But when I returned from that conference, after meeting Gilbert Ling, I gave one of his books to some of my students to look at, and every one of them came back to me with, a, with the same comment. This guy is on to something really important. And if he's right, 
this changes all of biology. And as you can imagine, it was really important for me to begin doing experiments to follow through on what Gilbert was suggesting. And so that's how we started. That's how we got into the study of water. And I I got to admit to you um, that, shame on me, uh, we had some funding to study muscle contraction, which which was my previous area of interest. And I uh, surreptitiously devoted a little bit of that money to study water. Well, of course, water has got to be essential in muscles, so I did nothing seriously untoward. But that's how we got started. So I hope that that answers your, your question. It does. actually. There's another thing which was very impressive to me in, in your work, which is you are confronting some very famous theories and saying, look, it sounds quite complicated, so maybe it's not right, which is a bit, and I think you're giving that example in the book as well, of how the way the Earth revolves around the sun all of a sudden was much more straightforward than the explanation which was there before, which involved a lot of calculation. But what's surprising in the way you confront those theories like Brownian motion or things like that is that you're confronting big names. You're saying basically maybe Archimedes didn't understand everything about his famous Eureka moment and maybe Einstein wasn't fully right. How is it as a scientist like you to confront those superstars of the field? Well, <laughs> superstars. So I, it reminds me of a comment when meeting with superstars. Uh, this is a brilliant student who, um, who came to me to give me advice. I was about to meet somebody who was important. It was obviously not Einstein or uh, Archimedes. Uh, I'm not that old. However, uh, he said, it's really simple. You go and you meet them and you look at them and you look at them as though they're sitting on the toilet and anybody sitting on the toilet can't be that important. And, uh, and I remember that when, uh, during my, my first meeting with the late Sir Andrew Huxley and Huxley was one of the greats. He passed about five or six years ago and he was involved not only with uh, studies of membranes that won him a Nobel Prize, but then he went into muscle, which was my field. And, and I remember I was about to meet him and, and, in a sense, confront him with three pieces of evidence that we had gathered during the past year, each of which was squarely against uh, his, just didn't fit with the predictions of his theory at all. I was a bit nervous, not only <laughs> about presenting the material, but by meeting this great man who when he walked into a room, it, it, there was a hush. It was, it was as though God had just entered the room. However, I knew previously, not only did our evidence conflict with his theory, and I, I believe our evidence, but, but prior to that, other people had also presented evidence that simply didn't fit. And so I, I felt I was on terra firma when I approached him, nevertheless a bit nervous. I learned from that experience that even famous, uh, really important, important people can be wrong because they're human. They do sit on toilet seats and they eat the same food that we eat and they uh, have the same foibles that we suffer ourselves and, and so on. So, yeah, in doing science, you know, the, the objective is not to pay homage to those 
famous or important people who have succeeded because they're human and humans can be wrong on any issue. It's to confront truth, to try to identify truth. And that means, it often means starting from fundamentals. And I think uh, uh, Sir William of Ockham had it right, now known as his principle, Ockham's Razor. And it was originally a theological argument taken up by Newton and translated into science. And he said, if you've got two competing ideas, like, for example, God exists or God doesn't exist, probably the simpler one is going to be the one that is correct. And and then Newton applied that to science. If you've got two competing ideas, one is simple, one is complicated, the simpler one is probably going to be correct. And that, that principle, in fact, held for for quite a few centuries until about a hundred years ago with the advent of physics and quantum mechanics, which put science into the realm of abstract mathematics. And, uh, you know, a question you might, one might raise is, does mother nature uh, do her, her work uh, based on abstract mathematics or is it simpler than that? And I guess I would vote for the simpler of the two options. And so, so this has actually guided my, scientific career. I'm looking for elegance and simplicity. And somehow, when you've identified it, there's a, a kind of resonance that comes. You, you kind of feel and know that you're on the right track, or you might be on the right track. And then, of course, it depends on the evidence and whether the evidence fits your simple idea. I do that. I do that all the time. And I do that with many mechanisms. I used to think when I studied, for example, I studied physiology with medical students at the University of Pennsylvania, just one of the courses I took, a very thick book and presented by the experts, some of the experts in the field. I couldn't understand so many of those mechanisms. And at the time, I thought, this is a shortcoming on my part. Maybe my brain cells are not quite as functional as those of others. And I thought, well, I, you know, I tried, but I simply can't understand In retrospect, I've come to realize that in many of those instances, the ideas presented are complicated because they're wrong. They simply don't make any sense. And if you try to make sense out of something that intrinsically doesn't make sense, you go nuts. And so I hope hope that answers your question about challenging authority. It has no place in science. I think that's a very valid point. I hadn't heard of that uh, imaginating people on the toilets in that context that was usually something you advise to people when they go to a job interview for instance but i guess that's valid for Einstein as well now i have to think of that but talking of toilets that's now a weird connection i'm making but right before our interview i was changing the diaper of my my daughter and um, i was thinking of you and of the book and i was like you know that diaper contains a lot of let's say, waterish content, and I have no clue how, and I have no clue why. To me, it's just a fact. It contains a lot of humidity. And I thought of how you demonstrate in the book that there are many things like that, like surface tension, like uh, uh, why boats leave still water behind them when they pass in, in the ocean, for instance. And all these things that you see in your everyday life and that you don't realize how little we know about it. And I'm going to be straight to the point. I mean, the book is called The Fourth Phase of Water. So you explain in the book how that fourth phase of water first exists. I mean, we know solid, we know liquid, and we know 
a vapor and you say, let's go beyond. And you discovered what you call, towards the end of the book, liquid crystalline or semi-liquid phase of water, which you call in the rest of the book and which has stayed with that name, easy water. So can you explain what easy water is? Sure. Easy may, may make no sense in Europe because uh, it stands for exclusion zone. And in the U.S., the Z is a Z. We say Z. And so uh, EZ is easy to remember. And so it works out very nicely. In Europe, it doesn't work quite as well because in other places because it's EZ. And so what does, you know, whether, whether uh, you, you pay attention to that or, or not, it's exclusion zone. And we, we called it that early on. And perhaps it was an error because exclusion zone actually describes a zone that contains this fourth phase of water. And it does exclude almost everything from it because it's a dense, tightly packed kind of entity and almost nothing can get into it. And so we started our experiments using microspheres and we found in these experiments that there was a zone, a region, next to certain surfaces where the microspheres got excluded. And so after a while, instead of going through this, this long description of a phenomenon, we had to give it a name. Someone suggested to us that we call it exclusion zone because it excludes, it contains a special kind of water that doesn't admit solutes that ordinary water does admit. Uh, it was an Australian colleague who kindly suggested that, and he also suggested it would be, quote, easy to remember. <laughs> and so we adopted it. But it doesn't describe in a convincing way what, what this water is, is all about, because it has other, besides excluding solutes and particles extensively, it has other really interesting properties. And those interesting properties are the ones that together teach us something about, about the water in biology and also outside of biology as well. So that's where exclusion zone comes from. So that means you take a bulk of water. I have here, I've played a little bit with them, some water molecules. I mean, the representation, the usual representation of, of water molecules. So you, you have these water molecules, you, you just put them in a, in a glass or in a tub and whatever you want. And after a certain time, that easy is going to build up. So that means this fourth phase of water is always present as a periphery of liquid water. Is that right? Yes and, and no. Um, it, it does form at the surface of water, at the, at the interface. It does tend to form. So yes, uh, that is one, one feature of the water. The feature that we tend to study because uh, it happens every time in, in an easily easy-to-measure fashion is next to hydrophilic surfaces, so hydrophilic water-loving, as opposed to hydrophobic water-fearing, like Teflon, for example. But most surfaces are somewhere in between hydrophilic and hydrophobic. They have a certain, a certain degree of hydrophilicity. And those surfaces, not everyone, but so many of them, if you were to immerse a material with that kind of surface into water, what happens is that the water molecules adjacent to that surface undergo a radical transformation, and they transform from the individual water molecules to a sheet-like array 
that has a hexagonal motif to it, uh, consisting of hydrogens and oxygens. It's not water anymore. It's undergone a transformation. And that, that first molecular layer then serves as a template for the growth of the second layer, and so on and so on. And these layers grow one by one, and they can grow to enormous lengths. We've seen them grow in, in certain circumstances up to a, a, a meter. I mean, this is extraordinary by any dimension, uh, of uh, any consideration, especially uh, one that is focused on the molecular level. Ima- imagine molecules organizing themselves layer by layer out to as much as a meter, granted under extraordinary conditions. But uh, typically it will be something like 500 micrometers, half a millimeter, something like that, or a third of a millimeter, even up to a millimeter in some ordinary cases. So that it undergoes, the water undergoes a transformation. And a feature of that transformation is that this structure is not neutral anymore. It has negative charge. And the region beyond this fourth phase, you know, the fourth phase is growing layer by layer. And if you look just beyond it, positive charges are cast out into that region as the uh, EZ or fourth phase is forming. So the EZ is negatively charged. The region beyond is positively charged. Together, they're neutral, but you have a separation of charge, which creates a battery. And we've demonstrated in the laboratory that starting with this battery, you can actually obtain electrical energy. So that's one other feature. The third feature I I want to mention is that this is an ordered structure of water with battery-like features. And you can't get that without putting in energy. If you want to create order, you need to put energy in. It's a a fundamental theme of physical chemistry and thermodynamics. And I, I believe it's true. It's not complicated. And also, if you want to charge a battery, you, you need energy to do that too. And so a question has been, well, where does this energy come from? And uh, we found, or I should say a student found, a student who was doing what he was not supposed to be doing, <laughs> he, he found that the energy comes from light, incident light, and particularly infrared light. Infrared being uh, far more powerful than any of the other wavelengths. We've seen instances where where this uh, fourth phase or easy water could grow by up 10 times, even in the presence of weak infrared light. So infrared is really important, and infrared is all over the place. It's not just coming from your toaster uh, or your sauna. Everything emits infrared, and that's why if you have a camera with an infrared sensor, even if it's pitch dark out there, uh, you get a beautiful image because everything is generating infrared. And that means that the energy for creating this EZ is always there. And in terms of biology, you yourself are generating uh, heat in, in your, the metabolic processes that are taking place inside your body. And this heat is essentially the same as infrared. And then so in your body, you have an internal source of infrared as well as external sources of infrared. And therefore, your body is filled with easy water, with four-phase water. So those are some of the properties. Yep. There's a lot to unpack in what you just explained. Let me just go back to what you said, that it's no longer water. It's just fourth phase. And you, you explain this hexagonal form that it's taking next to, to the surface, and then it's building layer by layer. 
But in a molecular fashion, molecular description, I mean, water to everyone is H2O. But under your definition, and that's probably why you say it's no longer water, what would be the best description? Is it H3O2? I think in the book you say h one point five oh. Well, yeah, or the same as H three O two. You know, you could multiply by n, where n could be any number, because it's a vast array. But, but yeah, we we say H three O two. So it isn't really water, and in, in some sense, calling it fourth phase of water is perhaps erroneous, uh, because you might say it's not water anymore. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we think of for example, of um, hydronium ions, H3O+. It's water together with an extra proton, and we still call it a kind of water, protonated uh, water. So we use the term water in, in a kind of loose sense. And, and even evaporating water, uh, we think of water evaporating one molecule at a time. I think that idea is erroneous, and we've demonstrated. It's in the book that you mentioned, The Fourth Phase of Water. We've demonstrated evidence that what evaporates is not exactly uh, what you think. It's not one molecule at a time. It evaporates in clusters, and these clusters have negative charge. And in addition to that, you have protons that are leaving the water as as well. Um, And these protons are repelling each other. They want to get away from each other, and they escape into the atmosphere. So, So you don't really have water, so to speak that's evaporating, you have something with negative charge and something with positive charge, both evaporating and both centrally important in weather and understanding weather. There's something else that you just mentioned in what I I still unpack from your explanation. You said that you have this separation of of charges and you explain in the book how that resembles the first phase of photosynthesis. It's somehow a similar mechanism. But if we have a water battery that can be charged by light, that sounds really, really, really promising on one end and too good to be true. What is it as a battery that we're talking here? Is it a potato battery which can power a clock or is it something which has much more potential in it? I think the latter. I think it has much more potential in it. So just imagine, uh, you know, Mother Nature... And Mother Nature was very successful in using light as the energy, photons as the energy source in green plants, and even before that in in some unicellular organisms. And one day she's sitting in her easy chair and yawning and thinking, I'm getting bored. I want to do something new, and I think I'll invent animals. And so, you know, animals can move around. They can eat plants, get their energy that way. But But if you were Mother Nature thinking about inventing animals, would you throw away a mechanism that has been seemingly so successful in so-called lower species, plants and unicellular organisms, or would you keep it in reserve or keep it in in some manner over and above the energy that you could get from food? And, uh, you know, the answer to me seems pretty obvious that uh, Mother Nature, why, why would she throw it away? Why not keep it? And if so, it, it means that you and I may be getting some of our energy from light. And you know, a student of mine right now is undergoing a seven-day fast. He's not eating anything, and he says he's full of energy. 
uh, it ends tonight. So if he survives, it will be one week. He's drinking. And there are other people, as documented by, uh, for example, uh, a very nice documentary film by Peter Straubinger, produced a few years ago, in which he interviews people who don't eat. And so, you know, if you don't eat, and by the way, this includes a guy from India who, who claims to have eaten nothing for 65 years. And a group of physicians went on to test him and reported that, you know, his physiology is perfectly normal, except he doesn't eat at all. And there are many people who do this. And I, I've been in contact myself with several, including my, my students, one week, but others for long periods of time. So where, where do they get their energy? And I think it's possible that they get their energy from the surroundings. And it may be that some of these people are particularly adept at accruing that kind of energy and, and using that energy. So that's, a you might say, a philosophical point of view about Mother Nature, but there's more. So every cell in your body is filled with easy water. And basically, it gets that way because of infrared energy that's responsible for building that water out of ordinary liquid water, converting it into, into easy water. And that, that water has negative, as I mentioned before, negative electrical charge. And so your cells, every one of your cells is filled with negatively charged easy water. And I would say parenthetically, I think that's the reason why if you stick an electrode into a cell, you measure 50 to 100 millivolts negative. There are other reasons that are set forth and, and believed by most everyone. I think that idea is not correct for reasons that are too extensive to go into right here. But I think the negative electrical potential comes from the negative charge of the easy water. It's very simple, not complicated. And so this negative charge, you've got a cell that's filled with negative charges. And all they want to do is get away from each other because they repel each other. And that tendency toward getting away from each other amounts to potential energy. It is energy that the cell can use. And I think that the cell does use that energy. And this is detailed in my earlier book on water. It's called Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life. How the water inside the cell plays a central role in practically everything the cell does. And that that potential energy that's there is used to propel these processes. Now, whether it's the main source of energy or a secondary source, it's really hard to say at the moment. I should say that, though, that some of your listeners who are into biology and such uh, will know about ATP as, as being the ac accepted energy source inside the cell. But what people don't know is, is that uh, one year after that idea came out, a, a prominent physical chemistry group said the idea is wrong that ATP has this special high energy bond that's used in all of biology. He said there was a, an arithmetic error. And that arithmetic error is pointed out by Gilbert Ling in his writings and his books and also his website, which I think is still working, gilbertling.org. He talks about it and he mentions, and I think it's still true today, that nobody has followed up on this challenge. The challenge that ATP has no high energy bond. So I'm not sure which argument is correct because uh, I think I'm not sufficiently adept to evaluate all of those uh, arithmetic concepts that 
go into the uh, calculations. I'm leaving it to others, but I just want to point out that the idea that ATP is is the ultimate source of energy has been challenged. And whether the challenge is accurate or not accurate, I'm not certain. But the process of photosynthesis bears such close resemblance, or the first step of photosynthesis, bears such close resemblance to what we've been studying that I can't help but wonder whether the two are actually the same. You know, first step is the cell, the photosynthetic apparatus absorbs light from the environment and then converts water molecules into OH- and H+. In other words, it breaks up the water molecule into these two fractions. That's step one of, I think, 20 or so uh, steps, most of which are not understood. It's a, a very long and complex process. But the first step is very simple, and it resembles what I've been talking about. So it's possible that you, your listeners, and maybe even I, <laughs> taking advantage of the energy that comes from light in our environment, uh, infrared light especially, and the infrared light coming from our metabolism. So that is a biological application and explanation of what you could be doing with that battery feature of easy water. I was wondering, because I was discussing with Paul O'Callaghan, which is the founder and CEO of Bluetech Research, who is looking at some companies in the water sector, which are looking at this easy water and trying to find some technical applications of it, be it as batteries or as you, you mentioned, this, this catalyst aspect also that it may have. I was wondering how involved are you in that part of the, of the development of your findings? Somewhat. We formed a startup a company called Fourth Phase incorporated and we were have been pursuing so far applications and the two applications that we we've had in mind mostly are number one uh or i should put this as number two but i'll mention it first is getting electrical energy from light and we've demonstrated in the laboratory that we can do it we can actually light an led by sticking one electrode in the negative EZ and another electrode in the positive region beyond. As I said, it acts like a battery. And we use that battery to power, to light a light bulb. Uh, it works. Uh, the problem that, yeah, as we have encountered in our startup, is that it takes an awful lot to cross the so-called valley of death successfully from a laboratory observation uh, to something that's uh, usable in a practical sense. And it requires a, a good deal of investment, and we've been able to obtain a, you know, a rather limited amount thus far. And the second, which we actually did spend quite a bit of time doing, and ran into some technical uh, difficulties that, again, require a substantial amount of development, and, and that is infiltration. So I mentioned to you that the EZ excludes practically everything. That's why it's called exclusion zone. And so if you have an apparatus that can create an easy, if you put water into this black box and the water contains any kind of pollution, uh, including pharma cast out pharmaceuticals, microplastics, you name it, it's excluded from the easy. And in that black box, if you have a way of creating easy and then collecting that easy as distinct from 
the ordinary water, you should have water that is contaminant-free. And it does work. It works beautifully in the laboratory. We developed a system to do that. And, and then we've been working on a practical way to make it work. It works, and we've run into technical obstacles because we want it to work every time. And uh, these technical obstacles have gotten in the way, and they still remain to be solved. And solving them requires um, uh, substantial investment in personnel and and such in order in order to get it done. So it's a real real challenge. And the, the real prize, I think, comes from that second that filtration. It's not just getting rid of pollutants. Uh, there are perhaps other ways to do that, but I think our way is neatest because there's no physical filter involved. You don't have to clean it on a daily basis or replace it or whatever, which is really cumbersome. So it has distinct advantages. And it, it, it's so simple in principle. But what we think it, it can do in the future is, as a filter, is to filter out the salt from, as a sort of contaminant, you might say, from ocean water. If we can do that, then we obtain drinking water, salt-free drinking water, and it uses only, it, there's no physical filter or anything, no energy requiring process except the energy from the sun, which is used to create the easy water, which should be salt-free. So we started uh, developing that just a little bit. We haven't really gotten too far, but I think this is the real prize, you know, because the reasons that need we all need water, it's becoming so scarce. And the reasons that need it most, I guess you might say uh, the Middle East, or, uh, North Africa and such, they've got lots of sunlight <laughs> there and lots of water, lots of ocean water. And uh, right now, the countries that are wealthy enough use reverse osmosis, but that's really costly in terms of energy. And in this case, you need only the energy from the sun. So these are all really exciting developments but a big challenge to um, cross that valley of death from laboratory observation to practical application. Well, that is also a topic where you recall me a discussion with Paul O'Callaghan because uh, he has written a full thesis around the dynamics of water innovation where he shows how all the discoveries in that field take 30 to 40 years to cross that, that valley of death and to be in the middle of the market. So I get you, it's quite a challenge. It is a challenge, yeah. What you're describing here with the potential application, for instance, in desalination, or I could see also, you know, water is on the critical path in applications like microelectronics, where they're looking for ultra-pure water. And basically what you're doing here, if it's water excluding everything else, that's the purest of the ultra-pure water there is. But if I recall right, you have a pH gradient in what you're building. Wouldn't you have a water that might be very pure, but also very aggressive in terms of pH? I'm not sure what you mean by aggressive in terms of pH. You mean deviating from what we would call a neutral or normal pH, a pH 7? Yeah. Why would you say um, aggressive? It might not be the good term, but if I recall right, the pH is dropping outside of the EZ. So I guess the pH is going higher inside of the EZ. And you have some gradients which were shown with uh, with color grades in, in the book. So I was wondering if, if that is a permanent feature of EZ or if it's just a transition phase. Well, yeah. I mean, what you say is accurate. As the EZ builds, it becomes negative and the region beyond becomes increasingly positive. And that 
increasingly positive uh, region, of course, it has low pH because it's got lots of protons. On the other hand, it's really not so easy to define the pH of the EZ because it certainly has negative charge, but pH is defined for liquids. And this is, it's not exactly a liquid, it's more like a gel. And so you can certainly talk about charge that's contained inside this gel-like water, but more difficult to define it in terms of its pH. So on the other hand, you know, the body uh, maintains this negative charge inside the cell by getting rid of all the complementary positive charges. And it does this. Uh, so every time you breathe, every time you exhale, you're breathing water vapor and carbon dioxide. And when you put together water and carbon dioxide, you get carbonic acid, and uh, which has the low pH. So basically, you're, you're getting rid of positive charges that way. So the body keeps uh, attempting to expel those positive charges and retain the negative charges. And that's why essentially every cell in your body is negatively charged. So you're negatively charged as well. We had some preliminary measurements from students which indicate that, although they didn't reach the stage of being secure enough to be published, but they're pointing certainly in that direction. So when you say, uh, you know, aggressive and with uh, all kinds of pH gradients and such, I'm not sure whether whether that's necessarily the case. And I, I guess the main main reason is is that the negative charge aspect, or so what you would call high pH, that energy is actually used, as we discussed a moment ago, is actually used to power uh, processes that go on your body. And the positive charges, which would give you uh, low pH, are expelled from your body. They're expelled is not just by respiration, but also, for example, if you sweat, the sweat contains positive charges at low pH. When you urinate, uh, the urine usually is pH neutral to low, so you could expel positive charges that way, et cetera, et cetera. So the body really tries to get rid of those um, extreme pH, extreme low pHs for perhaps the reason you're talking about. We've been discussing about the prospective applications of easy and and we described, I mean, you described easy water, if I might say so, <laughs> quite accurately. I mean, I think it's, I hope by now it's clear to everyone. In the book, you have a big part of the book, which is dedicated to showing how applications we all know in the real world might be explained by easy. And sometimes you say it is, sometimes it's, you say it might, and sometimes you say it could. So yeah, you have this uh, very funny graph with the out on a limb when you say, hey, sometimes take it with a pinch of salt and sometimes you have proofs to support the experiments. And I was wondering if you had to pick just three out of those phenomenons that you, you explain through easy, which one would you name? Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> you certainly ask challenging questions, um, which I appreciate. Oh, uh, uh, I can give you my favorite one if you wish. Oh, okay. Let's start with that. My favorite one is your explanation of how a bubble is very similar to a drop and how we shall call them vesicles and that maybe one is creating the other and i was like you know that was what i was mentioning with the boiling water and the, and the kitchen at the very beginning i really did it i was in front of some water that i put to boil and i was like okay it's 
that thing, which I see every day, every time I'm cooking some pasta. And now that I look at it with a bit more of attention, everything you describe makes a lot of sense to me. Well, thank you. Uh, that you're very kind to say so. But, but I think that's a good one to choose. Absolutely. And let me expound just a little. You know, when you see a structure that is spherical, how do you know what it is? How do you know if it's a droplet or how do you know if it's a bubble? And we tried early on and sometimes we were quite sure that it was a bubble. It turned out to be a droplet and it turned out to be an underwater droplet. And you wonder, well, how is it possible that you can have a droplet that exists inside of water? It's water in water. And the reason for that is that in order to create something spherical, we, we showed evidence in, in the book that it's got a membrane around it. Both of them, the bubble and the droplet, and the membrane consists, it's like onion layers, and each each layer is a sheet of EZ, and you might have many of these uh, layers. So the reason you get a sphere to begin with, whether it's a droplet or a bubble, the reason you get a sphere is that you've got water of some sort inside and that water has got a lot of protons in it, and we, we demonstrate that as the evidence in the book. And those protons are repelling each other. They, they want to get out. And what's restraining them is a membrane built of easy. It's sort of like a balloon. You know, you, you pump air into it, and the balloon expands. And what's keeping it spherical or almost spherical is the resistance of the balloon uh, material. And it's pretty much the same with the droplets and with the bubbles. The restraint comes from the membrane, which consists of EZ. So now why, why is this important? Why is it significant? And does it extend into other realms? Well, absolutely. And one of those realms is clouds. So we look up at clouds and uh, what are they made of? Is uh, Well, there are many, many questions on the clouds. Uh, the first one is, well, why do they float in the sky if they're made of water? You know, if you take a picture of water at the same elevation, if you open the door of your plane and pour the water out, the water comes down in a mass, but the cloud stays up. And so, I mean, that is one reason. And I, I won't answer that unless you ask me in a moment, but I want to get to what is the cloud made of? And you know, it's not liquid water, because if it were liquid water, you know, it would be just like pouring that liquid water out of the plane. Uh, it would come right down and like a waterfall or a bathtub full of water, and it doesn't do that, see? And then why on earth is it, when it rains, how come it rains in droplets? Uh, why, isn't it, why doesn't the whole cloud descend and inundate you with water? And the reason has to do with the makeup of the cloud. And the, the cloud is actually made up. It's not a, a liquid. It's not a gas. It's actually, it, it's, I don't know if you'd call it an undefined kind of structure, but it's a suspension of little droplets. And each of those droplets is the same as the droplets that we were talking about, whether they're bubbles or droplets. They all have uh, these uh, easy membranes. And these easy, as I mentioned before, negatively charged. And it turns out, for reasons I discussed in the book, that each droplet has a net negative charge. Now, if you think about, so we're back again to why this is important, the droplets versus the bubbles, and in conjunction with that, the existence of an easy membrane. So you've got these negatively charged droplets. And you'd think at first, well, they're all negatively charged. If you buy my argument, evidence of which is presented in the book, 
if you buy the argument, they should repel each other and the cloud should quickly dissipate. But it doesn't do that. Why not? Well, the answer, and in a sense, this comes from the great physicist Richard Feynman. The reason is that you've got two droplets, and if you ha- they're negatively charged, they should repel each other. But if you have a positive charge in between, then you've got two forces. You've got the repulsive force of these droplets that are repelling each other, want to get away from each other. And you have an attractive force of this positive charge in between that's actually pulling on those flanking droplets and wants to pull it all together. So when you have a balance of these two forces, the repulsive force and the attractive force, it remains stable. And so clouds are you know, moderately stable. You look up the cloud and it, of course, undergoes dynamic changes, but they're rather slow changes. And all of this has to do, if you get down to the basics, with the structure of individual droplets and bubbles, which are, in fact, much the same. So that's, um, I think, a good example of a phenomenon that has wide application. That is what you call your fourth principle, if I recall right, the like-likes-like mechanism. Exactly. Like-likes-like. So so Feynman, in his own inimitable way, he said, like-likes-like because of an intermediate of unlike. So, you know, it's just a beautiful way of describing the phenomenon that I, I just told you about. You have an intermediate of unlike charges, that is the positive one in the center, and two of these droplets that contain like charges. So like, likes like, it means that the two droplets want to come together because of an intermediate of unlike, the, the positive charges that lie in between those two negatives, and it becomes stable. So I, I think that was actually part of Feynman's Nobel lecture, if I, if I remember correctly. And, you know, it, it appears as a whole chapter pretty much in, in Feynman's classic book, lecture, three books, in fact, Lectures in Physics. Highly recommended. I'd like to step a little bit aside from Easy Water to cover, to swiftly cover. I don't want to sidetrack you too much, but it really intrigued me and appealed to my curiosity. You were mentioning two debacles that you call like that in the book, the poly water topic and the memory of water topic. And I wasn't sure about the conclusion because you, you present the cases, you show how, if I'm got it right, how dare you again with the poly water wasn't that far from, from showing the same that you showed with Easy, because the refutation was a bit, I mean, what you demonstrate is that poly water were discarded because the water wasn't pure, fully pure. And what you're showing is that if it had been pure, the effect would have been even stronger. Correct. So if I got you right, you, you validate the poly water, you say, Thankfully, <laughs> somehow, Deryagin couldn't prove his point, and that way you are the one writing the fourth phase of water and not him. Uh, you're not saying that, I'm saying that. I'm <laughs> not trying to put words in your mouth. But on the memory of water, I couldn't get your, your conclusion. Well, yeah, the memory. Let me, let me talk about that one. Poly water, yeah, I, I can't prove, but I do think that what Deryagin was onto is similar to what we observed, maybe the same phenomena observed using in different ways. And and I also know that uh, although Deryagin was, quote, proved wrong, you know, very famous, the, the most famous physical chemist in all of Russia. And in theory, 
it was claimed that he was wrong. And he's the one who uh, apparently sealed his coffin with nails by expressing his view that all the critics were correct. And as it turned out, I, I've had private conversations with two people independently, two people who knew him very well and who said that he actually, until the day he died, he knew that he was correct. He believed he was correct. And what you might surmise from that is that he was under pressure from the Soviets to declare that he screwed up. It was not the Soviet system of science, which would be embarrassing for the regime. But he specifically is the guy who screwed up because his water was contaminated. And yes, we found that uh, if we use pure water, we see uh, the easy phenomenon beautifully. And if we add contaminants, we still see it, but maybe not as strongly or as, as clearly, uh, but definitely there. So the argument is erroneous, uh, I, I think. Now, Ben Vinis stuff is, is more interesting. I don't want to go into every detail of, of what he did, but he at first was a scientist, a rather you know conventional scientist, who became very famous, uh, and some of the stuff that he produced is in every microbiology book. So, and he went back to France. He studied somewhat in the U.S. And he had a laboratory of something like 50 people, a very major scientist. And someone came to his lab and said, hey, you know, in these experiments that you're doing, you put some substance onto cells and the cells secrete another substance. He said, the antibodies that you, you expose to the cells, he said, I can dilute them and dilute them and dilute them so many times and still get the same highly specific result. And, you know, Jacques, who I, I knew reasonably well, he, he passed about six or seven years ago. He said, uh, impossible, that, that can't be. But he invited, being an intellectual, scientist, curious, he invited this guy. He said, here's a corner of my laboratory, and uh, it's free. Why don't you demonstrate what you can do? And he did it. It was kind of like, like a homeopathic procedure, dilute and shake, dilute and shake, and dilute and shake. And you can dilute to the point where, statistically speaking, there should be nothing left but water. And then it turned out that if you take this, quote, water, unquote, and pour it on the cells, they did exactly the same thing as what happened with the undiluted, you see. And, and of course, this seemed preposterous to the world, and especially to the uh, editor of the journal Nature, who uh, uh, it's another story, a kind of interesting story. But let me just come to the bottom line. So Ben Venice was shamed by this this editor, who sent a delegation to the laboratory to look at, at what they were doing. And the delegation of peers, so to speak, uh, consisted of the editor himself, who was a physicist, not a biologist. This is biological experiments. The amazing Randy, a uh, magician, famous, famous for determining the tricks of magicians, other magicians. And a guy named Walter Stewart from the National Institutes of Health, who was a fraud buster. So the, they surmised that this must be some kind of fraud, and they sent this delegation. They were not exactly peers to the laboratory, and even though in, in two out of three attempts, they demonstrated that the phenomenon really worked as they had reported, and the one time it didn't work, so to speak, was when one of the committee members did the dilutions himself. And so they drew the conclusion, they huddled, and they drew the conclusion that 
since the French seemed to get it to work all the time, but the visitor couldn't get it to work, it must be a trick. And the world's greatest magician maintains it was a trick, but couldn't figure out the nature of the trick, which is kind of interesting. So um, Ben Vidis, essentially, it was the end of his career being shamed by these people who, who wrote essentially an editorial in Nature saying the whole thing is a trick. And it was because of sloppiness or poor note-taking or something like this. And then within a year, several people claimed to have demonstrated that they couldn't reproduce it, reproduce the phenomena. And that was published also in, in Nature. And the objection to that is they actually didn't follow his protocol. They followed their own protocols. And therefore, if they got a, a negative result, it didn't prove that Ben Venice was wrong. It just proved that whatever protocol they used, it didn't work in the same way. But since then, Ben Venice has been confirmed in many laboratories. And in our water conference, which we organize each year, I, I do the scientific organization. We invite speakers. At that conference, it, it, Ben Venice is a hero. And the reason he's a hero is because the people at the conference know that his work has been reproduced many times, including presentations at that conference. And, and one, one paper is by a, a group they published together. The first author is Belon, B-E-L-O-N. I think he's Spanish, he or she, I, I, I can't recall, in which a consortium of laboratories throughout Europe, some of them skeptical, repeated the experiments exactly as Ben Venice uh, did, and they reported together that uh, I believe it was five out of six of them uh, could reproduce what he and his group claimed. And by the way, when they claimed it, they said, even for them, it doesn't work every time, but it works so much of the time that easily it's statistically significant, although they couldn't identify the reasons why occasionally it wouldn't work. So, I mean, that in a quick summary, essentially that's the story of uh, Jacques Benvenis. So those two are, you might say, debacles that, that took place because of serious consequences. In the first case, it might have meant, uh, you know, if, if Der Jagen hadn't cooperated, it, it might have meant that he'd wind up in Siberia somewhere in a work camp. And in the case of Benvenis, uh, it's just that, it sounded, the whole idea sounded preposterous, so preposterous that the editor of Nature couldn't imagine that it, it could conceivably be true. And the reason, let me just conclude by, because you've got other questions, by, by saying that the re reason is they, they thought of water as being independent molecules bouncing around the, uh, randomly at a fierce number of times each second, or each, you know, as I said, femtosecond. And there's no way that uh, a substance like that could retain memory or information, which is really what Ben Venice was talking about, memory of what the water had seen before it was diluted. However, they didn't know about easy water, and easy water is like a crystal. And crystals are, like silicon crystals, are used in computer memories, and they indeed can store information. And so if um, if the water that we're talking about is easy water, and there's a reason to believe that, uh, that that's the case, they absolutely do have the capacity. I mean, the easy water being a liquid crystal, pretty much like a, a silicon crystal in many ways, does have the capacity to store information. And now at that same water conference, water information in water is a given, almost 
I can't say everybody who attends the conference is in agreement, but pretty much so, as far as I can see. So those are really interesting stories. They have humanistic aspects to them, which I, I think we don't have time to go into, but I, I do detail them to some extent in the book. Well, that leads me to my opening question to close, which is kind of ironic, which is you will have, aside from your activities on the easy water itself, you have created the Institute for Venture Science and what you described right now with those two outliers. I mean, clearly what you described with, with Ben Venice is to me an outlier. He himself couldn't believe it to be true before he tested it and found out it was. And that's my understanding of what you intend to achieve with your Institute for Venture Science. It's like, even if it's against the odds, if, if it has the chance to be transformational, let's let's test it out and let's try to do research on those topics, which might not be within the usual spheres of classical research. To understand you, you're right with, with that approach, what, what do you intend to do with this venture science? Yes. Uh, yeah, okay. This is a, a good question. I'm glad you you asked because we're really excited about about this institute and so, yeah, the purpose of the Institute is to provide funding from private sources and uh, to fund scientists uh, who, who are addressing issues that, that may run against the mainstream. Why do we need this? Well, uh, we need it because unlike technologies that, that are disruptive and challenge the mainstream and can be supported by investors, if, you're, if you've got a scientific topic, a fundamental science with no obvious practical application, but really important because ultimately every new finding produces applications that you could never have conceived earlier. So unconventional science is absolutely critical, but scientists don't have much of a chance to pursue them. And the reason, the reason is that uh, they need money to do it. Any scientist working in a laboratory, you need to equip the laboratory. You need to pay for the people who are actually doing the experiments in your laboratory. And it's not cheap. And especially at universities, generally the universities contribute zero. They expect you to bring in money from the outside. So the difficulty with bringing money in from the outside can be exemplified by, by let, me, let me give you uh, an example, you, Antoine, you have an idea. You're maybe not, or I'm, I'm not sure your background, but perhaps you're not a professional scientist working at a university. I'm a humble engineer. <laughs> uh, well, I started in engineering too. And I don't know, humble, maybe, I don't know. Some people say so, but <laughs> I can't judge that. So we're perhaps in, in, in the same boat. But you, Antoine, have an idea and it runs against mainstream thinking. And your idea, uh, the, the one I always like to present because it's so convenient, your idea is that the earth is round. But everybody around you knows that the earth is flat because all you need to do is look out the window and it kind of looks flat out there. You know, you don't see much in the way of curvature. And everybody believes that. It's common knowledge that the earth is flat. And you're, you're thinking, wait a second, something's wrong here because, um, you know, I've seen satellite pictures. And each time I look, I see the Earth is curved. It looks, looks round, looks like a sphere. And so, you know, the prevailing idea to me sounds, sounds wrong. And you even pursue 
your idea a little bit. Um, looking, you know, you're thinking, okay, so the Earth, the, if the Earth is flat, if I take off from Paris, I go from there and I, I travel westward and I go to London, from London to uh, New York City, to Seattle, to Tokyo, and, and eventually come back. And wait a second, if the Earth is flat, how am I able to come back? And you even were more conscientious than that. You looked out the window. You said, next flight, you said, if the Earth is flat, you know, in order for me to get back, the only way this could happen is the Earth is a cube. And you're looking for the edges of that cube. And you keep looking outside. You don't even sleep or eat. You just look and look, and you can never find the edges of that cube. And so you go to one of the funding agencies, uh, like the National Science Foundation, and you put in an application for money because you want to study this. Obviously, if the Earth is round, everybody should know about it because it, it's really pretty important if it's not flat. If it's round and you, you come with so-called preliminary data, so-called in the, in the scientific realm, the pictures that you've seen of round Earth and your story about looking out the window of the airplane, and it gets to the funding agency. And the gatekeeper at the agency received the application. Oh, this is from Antoine. And reads through quickly. And, oh, this looks pretty radical. This is very interesting. Uh, you know, if this guy is right, it, it's a fundamental change of scientists. So I, I'd better do my job and recruit the most competent reviewers to check out this application, review it, and see if it makes sense or if this Antoine guy is a crackpot, which is true. So who does he or she recruit? The most famous people, the most accomplished and adept people in the field of the shape of the earth, right? Who are these people? Well, they're the flat earth people. So it means if you're right, they're wrong. And they don't like to be wrong. <laughs> you know, nobody likes to be, be wrong. It's human nature. So it goes to this review group and they read carefully and what are they going to say? They're going to say, they're not going to be enthusiastic about giving you a score that allows you to get the money. Uh, on the other hand, you know, they have to be a little careful about their reviews. So they'll come up with something like, oh, you know, this is a very interesting application, but the guy has not proposed the proper degree of statistics or the proper statistical approach. He should come back again another time and, and be really careful. And maybe he should team up with some people in the field to make sure that, that the right expertise is there. You, you'll just miss the funding threshold, you know, and everybody around the table will be happy about that because they're all flat earth people and they don't want to be challenged. So your first line reviewer will be a, a hero because he turns down your application. Now you multiply this by every scientific field and it's all the same because of human nature. Some of us may, as reviewers, we may think of ourselves as open-minded, but we're also biological creatures, and there's an issue of survival. If you're right, they're wrong. And if they're wrong, they're going to lose their funding. And if they lose their funding, it could be that they even lose their salary because a lot of people are funded from these research grants, and that will be the end of their scientific career. So the system is set up in a way inadvertently in a way that guarantees that the most far-reaching of fresh ideas don't get funded. And the end result is, if you ask yourself, can you name a scientific revolution, a major scientific revolution that's occurred in the, 
in your lifetime, or let's say in the past 30 or, or 40 years, I've asked that question to many, and mostly they're, they're sort of dumbfounded uh, without, they can't identify an answer. And I'm not talking about a technological revolution, like what's allowing us to communicate as we're communicating right now. I'm not talking about that. That's technology. And technology gets plenty of funding uh, from those who are basically exploiting this opportunity. But fundamental science is different. There's there's no obvious place where radical ideas, you know, like an iPhone uh, could get the proper investment for development or research. And that's why ideas like, um, I mean, fundamental scientific breakthroughs, like the uh, genetic code, which was in the mid-1950s, how many years is that? Uh, 65, 70 years. And uh, the splitting of the atom, which is 10 years prior. Those are, you know, fundamental scientific revolutions, of course, with many applications as as all scientific revolutions produce. But there's no obvious mechanism to fund, to support these radical ideas in, in science, not talking about technology. And that's the reason why it's probably hard for you to identify a genuine scientific revolution. I mean, one that's really impacted your life, not like, for example, um, a Higgs boson that got a no- Nobel Prize a few years ago. You know, has that impacted your life in any way? Can you even understand it or explain it? There's a cool episode about it in the Big Bang Theory. That's what I can tell you. But uh, <laughs> uh-huh. that's a sitcom. That's not uh, nothing which is really impactful. <laughs> oh, okay, a sitcom. Yeah. Well, yeah. We don't. That's a separate category. So, so anyway, it's the reason why. The idea of uh, an institute that funds specifically those ideas that challenge mainstream ideas that have outlived their usefulness. And we've gone so far as to identify five um, projects out of more than 200 applications, pre-proposal applications. We've uh, invited 15 full proposals, and out of those, with very thorough review, more than I, I think any other organization that I can, I can imagine, very thorough review, I selected five of those that show extreme promise. And if we could get the money to fund them, uh, I think some of those will produce scientific revolutions. They show that much promise. And we've also removed one obstacle. And I'll tell you the obstacle because it's sort of, it's part of the territory. If you, Antoine, got some money from an organization to uh, to pursue your radical round-earth idea, you'd think that would be sufficient. Oh, I can do experiments, and I could really show that the Earth is round, and you might actually do so successfully. But someone's going to pop up from the Flat Earth Society, raise a flag, and say, oh, Antoine, he's a crackpot. Pay no attention to Antoine. And what do you do? There's nothing you can do. You you can't stand up and wave your flag and say, no, I'm not a crackpot. I'm really serious about it. It just doesn't work. And the opposition has the numbers to quash any sort of rebellion. And so it stops right there. Even if you get funded handsomely, you're dead. So we know what to do about this. Uh, we know that if we fund you for your round earth idea, we're going to look for up to 10 or a dozen laboratories, independent laboratories 
who follow your general line of thinking, who think, yeah, 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 Antoine might be right. And I'm going to use my own methodology. I'm proposing to do that, to study the roundness of the earth. And next year, a dozen of you go to the Shape of the Earth Society and you pop up and a dozen of you are presenting evidence using each one using a different technique independently that, yeah, the earth is round. It's impossible for them to call you a crackpot, or even if they do, nobody will take it seriously because are all 12 of them crackpots independently? And we think that this approach will lead to scientific revolutions. So, you know, anyone who's listening to this who who has done well in life or knows someone who has done well in life wanting to give back to society, I, I hope that you'll consider contacting us or me. And the uh, URL is very simple. It's ivscience.org. IV like an intravenous uh, institute for venture, ivscience.org. And we'll be happy to chat with you. This is, I think, a critically important endeavor for the future of the world. Well, I'll put, of course, all these links in the episode notes. So in case you, you want to click on it directly, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating approach. And it's also very interesting the way that you anticipate the, the potential repulsion that yeah, revolutionary idea might, might generate and to have directly the, the antidote within the research. That's quite a clever approach. Thank you. Last element. First, let me give an advice to everyone listening to this. I think I can't remember the last class I attended where I was one of the best in physics or, or, or chemistry. So just to say, I'm an engineer, but I always preferred the, the maths and the application to the theory. So I was a bit reluctant when I opened your book the first time. I was really wondering if I would understand a single thing. And it turned out that it's really written for everyone to understand. So uh, even a crackpot like me <laughs> was able to understand. So the really, it's very pleasant to read. It's really the kind of book which you go through and you, you learn a lot of stuff while not having just posed the book and, and to take some notes and to write something to understand what you just read. I mean, it's real and concrete and it's pretty easy to understand if you give it some brain time. So that is really, so thanks a lot for that first. Well, thank you so much for your kind words. Huh. My point here as well is that the book was written in 2013, and I've seen on your website that since the book, you've been working on, on many scientific papers. I've seen that over your full career, you're involved in 300 scientific papers. And I saw that there's quite a lot of them which have been published since the book. And if you had to pick just one or two that stand out within those, what would it be? And can you re recommend us some additional reading to follow on the fourth phase of global? Oh, okay, yeah. Um, uh, there are two of them, and you'll have to remind me of the second one when I start talking about the first one, because <laughs> I, I will forget. And the first one has to do with the uh, uh, vascular system and, in your body and what, what drives it. And the second one has to do with the understanding of what does pH really mean, okay? And the first one, it would take me a few minutes, to, but uh, I'll tell you the, the bottom line first. The bottom line is that everybody knows that your heart drives the circulatory system, but we found that there's another driver that works together with the heart, and that is the, the blood vessels themselves. 
to drive the blood. And let me back up a moment because this is a difficult one for for people to uh, to accept and believe, but I, I, I think we have the evidence for it. It means, uh, and it's related to the easy water. It's how we came upon it. And there is a paper that we've submitted for publication, but it's also uploaded on the bio archive for anybody to freely access it right now, pre-publication. And so we found in the laboratory that if you, if you take a, a tube made of hydrophilic material, like a straw, and put it in water, that the water will flow through the straw from one end to the other without stopping. And we found, without going into great detail, this goes on indefinitely. We found that the energy comes from light, largely infrared light, and the infrared light builds an easy annulus just inside the tube, which releases protons to the very core of the tube. And those protons are repelling each other. They want to get out, and they will get out either at one end or the other end. And once they get out, dragging water with them, water comes from the opposite end and replaces uh, what, what's missing. So you get this continuous flow. So we discovered that. And then one day I took a trip to Russia, and I met with my dear friend, Vladimir Vyakov, who is a professor and vice chair in the biochemistry department at Moscow University. And he came and introduced me to his colleague. And he was very eager for me to hear what his colleague had to say. And the colleague said to me, there's a big problem in the cardiovascular system. And I said, uh, big problem? What, what, what are you talking about, big problem? Uh, because I had studied the dynamics of the cardiovascular system as a graduate student. It was, in fact, my PhD thesis about pressures and flows in the different vessels in the cardiovascular system. And I actually thought we had it all worked out. It was very simple. So I came to this guy with my nose in the air a little bit, some element of arrogance, thinking, what is this guy going to tell me? Within five minutes, he had me convinced that there was something really wrong with the conventional view, including the view that I had. It took only five minutes. So what did he tell me? He said, he said, you know, the, the big problem is that the blood vessels are big and smaller and smaller, and the smallest ones are only three or four micrometers in diameter. And through those, three or four micrometer vessels have to pass uh, particulate matter that's twice the diameter. The red blood cells are six or seven micrometers in diameter. So, you know, Mother, Mother Nature didn't make a mistake. Usually she doesn't make mistakes. And so something is going on. He says that in order for these galumphing blobs to make their way through those capillaries, you have to squeeze them, right? Otherwise, and you can look at videos um, and you can see that uh, videos of capillaries with red blood cells they're not the classic um, uh, disc-like cells. They all get squeezed as they're flowing through the capillaries. It's common knowledge. But what's not common knowledge is the amount of energy it requires to squeeze them down. And uh, he computed it. He said if the heart is responsible for driving those red blood cells through, it would need to develop something like a million times the pressure that it actually develops. That's high blood pressure. Parenthesis. So obviously, the heart can't do it all. There must be something else. 
and he started telling me his theories about what those something else's might be. And he had a, a bunch of different ideas. And I must admit, I was less focused on those myriad ideas than what we had just found in our laboratory. That when you have a hydrophilic surface, a tube, if you have the energy coming in, the infrared energy, that uh, it will power the flow through the tube. And it's based on the easy phenomenon. So I'm thinking, oh, this is pretty interesting. You know, it might be that what's going on is, yeah, it's not just the heart. It's the vessels themselves who are acting, which are acting pretty much the same way as these tubes act in the laboratory. So I went back home and I tried to interest my student, uh, Zheng Li, in doing some experiments to check it out. And he admits to me that when he first heard the idea, he said it sounded to him preposterous. On the other hand, you know, being, uh, quote, obedient, unquote, <laughs> it's not what I tried to instill in my students, actually quite the opposite. <laughs> but he undertook the experiments and the results were, were positive. And, and the way he did it uh, was he took a, a heart from a chick, a, a chick embryo. And it, the embryo at age three, three days, the vascular system is pretty well developed, but the regulatory systems, hormonal and uh, neuronal, are not yet well developed. So it's a fairly pure system of vessels alone. And the first thing he did was to stop the heart. It's really easy to do. You just take uh, potassium chloride and you inject it in the heart and heart stops. So what happens after the heart stops? Well, if the heart were solely responsible for driving the flow, flow should stop right away. But it didn't stop right away. It went on at a much lower velocity, but it continued, meaning something is driving it. And Lee found that he was not the first one to find it. Over the last century or so, there have been half a dozen different reports from different scientists, using each one using different system. And they found the same thing, that when the heart stops, the blood keeps flowing. So it can't, there must be something else. You could argue in some of those studies that the conditions were not exactly right. There could be gravitation is driving the sort of flow. But he was able to rule out those potential artifacts in, in his experiments, and the flow continued. So he, he tested the most fundamental feature of the, of the flow phenomenon that we have found, namely that infrared light, infrared energy is driving it. So he imparted infrared energy, and he found that the flow reversibly increased by a factor of three times. So the result satisfies or satisfied the, the prediction that we made. And I think that the answer, it doesn't prove it, but it's certainly consistent with the idea that in your body, it's not just your heart that's driving the flow, which essentially everybody thinks, and I thought so myself up until recently, but that there's a secondary driver and that is the vessels themselves. And how much do the vessels contribute versus how much does the heart contribute? That part is yet to be uh, figured out. It's not clear. So I think that is one of our uh, significant, uh, you might say, breakthroughs stemming from easy water, stemming from a laboratory observation, I think with a, a rather meaningful consequence. Um, and as I said, it's available, it's uploaded on BioArchive. Anybody uh, could, could look for it uh, there. And hopefully it will get published soon.
So that is number one. And you said number two, I have to remind you, is on pH. Yeah, what is pH? So uh, when I was a graduate student, I started learning about pH and buffers, how buffers work, you know, to keep, to maintain pH. And I could never understand how buffers worked. I tried and tried. And since then, I found that others ran into the same problem. They really don't understand how buffers work. And in our body, there are many buffers to maintain uh, the pH. I gradually came to realize that it may be that my limited ability to understand uh, uh, arose because of my own my own limitations. But since other people have had the same problem understanding, you know, the, the, the equations are pretty clear, but understanding the principle at a fundamental level has evaded a, a number of us. I, I came to, to wonder how all that might work. And so we began to study pH and it was, It was motivated, we got a simple result, I'll tell you in, in a moment. It was motivated not only by, by lack of understanding, but motivated by a question that I asked many people, and nobody could give me a straight answer. And I asked, I asked the, the question I could ask right here. If you have a solution with, let's say, low pH, like acids or so, is it neutral or does it have a net positive charge? And on the one hand, you could argue, well, it's got... It has a lot of protons in it, so it must have a net positive charge. On the other hand, you could argue that, no, it can't have a net positive charge because if you have, for example, HCl, you've got H plus one, Cl minus one, they balance. And despite, yeah, you've got protons, but it, you have a balancing act, and therefore it's got to be neutral. And it turns out that you know roughly half the people I ask will say, oh, it's neutral. And the other half said, no, it's got to be positively charged. And the, the only way I can interpret that is, is, is that nobody learns uh, when people study pH. What does it really mean? Um, it, you know, you're not taught that because it's a question that people don't ask. And I thought it was a relevant question to ask because people don't know the answer, uh, as evidenced by the fact that 50% choose one option and 50% choose the other. And I was motivated to do that. Uh, someone had written a paper challenging some point of view that I had expressed. And this was a, a, a guy, I don't recall his name, but a, a distinguished professor from, uh, I think, member of the National Academy of Science, who said it's impossible for anything to have net charge. If you have, if you have a, a beaker full of some liquid, it can't have any net charge. And he said every physical chemist will tell you that. And I... I was thinking, you know, he might well be wrong, even though uh, he asserted that with, with some, some kind of certainty. So, so we did experiments, and the experiments to check to see whether solutions of different pH, are they neutral or are they charged? And the answer uh, turned out unequivocally that they're charged. And if you have low pH, it's positive charge. And the more concentrated you have, of, let's say if you put an acid in, the more positive charge it would have. And the opposite uh, with basic solutions, you know, the more basic it is, the more negative charge. So what that means is in your cells or anywhere, if, if you have a solution, if we're right, and I believe we're right, because I think the experiments are really clear, the results are really clear, that if you have a solution of a certain pH, what it really means is that you're measuring the amount of charge in the solution. And for me, that's really a lot easier to understand than pH, which is 
fundamentally a mathematical uh, construct, but more primitive and more simple is, you know, you, you've got a container of a liquid and how much charge does that contain? This is similar to what's inside your cells. And you asked me earlier about uh, easy water and what's the pH value. And I kind of equivocated to say, well, it's not really a liquid, and but uh, it's got net negative charge. And if you were to assign a pH to it, you'd assign a high pH as you were thinking about, about doing. But really what it means is it's got negative charge. And I think everything is simpler that way if you, if you run through to understand that it's as simple as net charge. You don't have to run through the mathematics and the logarithms and whatever. That sounds like Occam's razor again. I think it is. You know, I just have to say one more thing based on that um, about the Occam's razor uh, stuff. Um, let, let's leave it for another time. I think, uh, yeah, we've we've abandoned so much Occam's razor. My my colleagues will stand up in front of a seminar room and report something that is extremely complicated, and the The, the subtext is, look how complicated this is, and I'm smart enough to be able to understand it and pursue it. So look at me, I'm you know special. But it's so deviant from the principle of Occam's razor, which in my book is, is really fundamental to the uh, whole foundation of science. Well, I could spend three more hours trying to explore all, all those elements and all the, the bits and pieces that you left left and right within this conversation because there would be much more to unpack. But for today, I'll try to be a bit cautious of your time. So uh, I propose you to, <laughs> to switch to, to the rapid fire question to round that off. It's time for the rapid fire questions. In this last section, I try to have short question which you can answer with short answers. And my first question is going to be, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Well, when you say have been working on, uh, I guess there are a couple of exciting. We're, we're now moving into, starting with water and easy water and such, uh, we're moving into, you might say, applications. Uh, I'm not sure if that's exactly the right word because they're not technological applications, but it's uh, gaining an understanding of the world. And I have two books that both of which are almost complete. I'm largely waiting for my son, who's a talented artist who did the illustrations on my fourth Facebook. And so many people have commented on, uh, on the beauty of the illustrations and uh, the whimsical nature of some of it. Uh, but he's busy remodeling his house. And so I have to respect the fact that uh, his family is now living in very tight quarters and waiting for him, acting as general contractor to finish all that work so they can live in some reasonable comfort. And so the two books are kind of waiting on, on, on the sideline. And one of them, you said, was exciting. And so, of course, what's exciting is what is the next step. And in, in the book, I deal with the role of electrical charge in nature. And many of the phenomena, I argue, that we see every day, but we don't really understand, can be explained by... Uh, understanding that electrical charge plays a central role. Uh, some of the phenomenon are, uh, amount to, for example, what turns the earth every 24 hours? What's the origin of wind? How do clouds really form? Why does it rain sometimes and not 
other times. What's the nature of gravitation? How do fish swim? How do birds fly? Even, to some extent, how do airplanes fly? Which you may be surprised in a scientific uh, American article one year ago. I forget the title, but the subtitle is, even now we still don't understand what keeps planes in the air. Uh, surprising and scientific American. Even the experts don't understand. So those are some of the topics covered, and you can understand why uh, it might in- interest me a lot. I find this exciting. And, uh, and the second book has to do with the structure of the atom. I think it's wrong, the one we've learned, the basic construct. Uh, and and the, the surprise to many is, is that when the physicists came through with the so-called solar system model, and now greatly modified uh, by quantum mechanics, the chemists said, uh, th- and this came through through the physicists who were dominant at the time, the chemists said, this is nonsense. It, it, it doesn't explain the first reaction in chemistry. And they came up with a few other ideas. And um, so I argue in the book uh, reasons similar to the chemists. I didn't know about it at the time. Why the model, I think, is fundamentally flawed. Uh, very simple, logical arguments. And I put forth a mechanism which, uh, to my surprise, is actually rather similar to what the chemists, the most prominent chemists, had been advocating 100 years ago. And I developed that to a large extent. So that, that's, uh, and that book is almost done as, as well. And that's, for me, the excitement. And all of this started from, from water. And it started not only from water itself, but from some of the scientific principles that came out of a search for understanding of water. And, and now they're being applied scientifically, I don't mean technologically, but scientifically to understand the world around us. Obviously, I don't know if I'm right. I may be totally wrong, but uh, those who have fed back to me said, you know, your ideas make total and complete sense. So and I'm sure that they will be rejected by the colleagues who are in their respective fields. How can this outsider come through with that kind of nonsense? He's a crackpot for sure. So anyway, I, I'm responding to that. I'm really excited about what we're doing. Going back to the field of water, what is the trend to watch out for in the water industry? I don't follow the water industry with any degree of precision or uh, detail. It's a huge, huge industry. What to look for? Well, you know, Antoine, I, I, I guess it, 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 it depends. Uh, if the people in the water industry uh, take the idea of easy water or structured water, as it was once called, uh, or other seriously, they may begin a, a rethinking of how to solve the problems that need to be solved. And in that case, they're going to follow along with some of the ideas that I've been hinting at or, or suggesting, uh, ideas for filtration, for example, and for energy harvesting. So far, my experience is those people are sort of practical, practically oriented engineers who don't really follow the fundamental science. And so I think they're going to be, uh, as long as that holds, they're going to be continuing along with basically with what they've been doing, which is trying to improve what they're doing. And, you know, this great example, I forget who, who showed it, is a light bulb with a, a candle inside of it. And 
with a comment that, you know, <laughs> the way to move things along is not to perfect uh, candle lighting um, to keep improving it, but to start something that is brand, a brand new idea. And so if, if they take account of uh, what we've discovered, and I certainly hope they do, they may be switching gears and solving the problems that they need to solve. And we're all aware of, of, of those problems, uh, you know, getting rid of the pollution in the water, getting energy, renewable energy and such. Um, the problems have been, I think, pretty much outlined, but the solutions could take one, or two, one of two paths. And the current view or the current approach to solving them will probably yield incremental improvements, which they have been yielding. But I think we need to switch gears. And those who have you know, the interest in looking at the fundamental science, um, which, uh, you know, a good place to look is actually at our conference. Uh, the presentations are have been video access, um, and it's free. So to, to follow the fundamental science, which is gathered together at that annual conference, a lot of eyes begin to open when they see that. And my, my hope is is that the trend will un- undergo a lateral or reverse uh, shift into something something completely new. And I, I think it's going to take some time to happen. You were mentioning 30 or 40 years. Uh, I hope it occurs more quickly uh, because the problem is so urgent right now. It's a problem that we need to solve. Also, you know, the problem of climate and weather, I give the analogy of like a car. It's difficult to fix a car if you don't understand the principles of how the steering wheel and the accelerator and the brake work. Your car is towed to the shop and, you know, if the mechanic has no idea, he, he or she won't be able to fix it very well. And so I would certainly encourage to those who have the time and interest uh, a pursuit of learning what basic science is now beginning to show. That will change their course and accelerate the results enormously. That leads me to my closing question, which is first a way to thank you for <laughs> that very insightful discussion on my end. So uh, it was very, very interesting to listen to your explanations. And that opens the appetite, if I might say so. Would you have another guest like you to recommend me? I should invite absolutely on that same microphone. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, toward the, the practical end, and, um, and especially in terms of health. A person I would recommend is Gina Bria. Gina runs the uh, so-called Hydration Foundation. She's not a scientist, but uh, she understands the, the critical importance of water and hydration of, uh, of the body. She wrote a book that I, I think is a bestseller. It's called, she and her colleague, it's called Quench. And it deals with the role of water. And she understands, uh, although not a scientist, the, the role of structured water, easy water in, in cells. And, and she's a really dynamic uh, kind of person. And so um, I can certainly connect you with her, but you can easily find her uh, Hydration Foundation, Gina, B-R-I-A, is her family name. Uh, I think she would be a really interesting guest for you, although she's not French. <laughs> I don't invite that much French on that microphone just because um, they have the same shitty accent than I do. So it's not... <laughs> <laughs> uh, your accent is beautiful. And by the way, I, I'm not sure 
I'm not sure if we're on the air or off the air, but I, I must say that I really appreciated your really uh, penetrating questions that show huge insight into all of these. Um, uh, so thank you for your unusual insightfulness. Uh, very well, much appreciated. Well, that makes the, the perfect conclusion to this episode. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for all of that. And uh, I'll make sure to have your books as soon as they're out, because now you teased us to additional ones. And maybe that's a, a right point in time to have a follow-up discussion. I'd be very, very happy to do so. Absolutely. That would be my great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for that. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.